but you're always searching to kind of make people on set forget that they're acting the 20s or that they're acting this character. You want it to just feel ultimately like there's no bridge between life and art. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. In this episode, the unbridled decadence and depravity of early Hollywood is depicted in director Damien Chazelle's comedic drama, Babylon. The film chronicles the rise and fall, outsized ambition, and outrageous excess of multiple characters during Hollywood's transition from silent to sound films in the late 1920s. In addition to Babylon, Chazelle's other directorial credits include the feature films First Man, Whiplash, and Guy and Madeline on a Park Bench. He won the 2016 DGA Award for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Feature Film for La La Land. Following a screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Chazelle spoke with director Taylor Hackford about filming Babylon. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you, Taylor. Well, this is uh, <laughs> it's a great audience for this picture because you, of course, know that uh, all directors pan along with the uh, uh, you know with the crowd out there saying, "Kill the motherfuckers!" <laughs> and <laughs> no last looks. Right? Exactly. <laughs> to me, I mean, this is a fantastic pageant to talk about. You know, people have forgotten in this business, how we started, a lot of people have, and that transition. And I think one of the, seriously, one of the great sequences that I've ever seen in a film is the, the sound sequence. You know, it's just because we've all forgotten. You know, you start the film in a way that, you know, you see how wide open everything was. And, of course, without sound, you could do whatever you want. You could shoot three or four movies in one, you know, one little, quote, studio. Uh, you know, it's all happening there like a circus, but kind of doable and ex- explained in the freedom that it evolved and, of course, the talents that it engendered. Fantastic, and that's what you're saying. And then, of course, sound comes in, and, of course, we've been able to defeat that to a degree because we can now go on location. But the the going to prison, that's what it was like to make a sound picture. And I don't think I've ever seen it expressed quite as beautifully and painfully <laughs> as because you feel the, the portcullis come down. Yeah. I mean, you literally feel the restrictions and what happened to our business with sound. And that's, you know, revolutionary. So just talk about your, I mean, number one, you're the writer and what you're, what you're I mean, you can see it, the canvas, but what you were trying to say. I mean, I, th- I think uh, in many ways, yeah, you, you said it yourself so beautifully that it, it was this sort of imprisonment of all the kind of uh, sort of wide open energies that I think characterized uh, those earliest days of Hollywood that, and as you also said, you know, Hollywood eventually, filmmakers eventually kind of learned how to surmount the obstacles that sound initially posed. But I can only, I mean, for me as a filmmaker, I think I just found my jaw sort of dropping on the floor when I would just read about that period and sort of try to fathom that, you know, for instance, 1927 comes along and 
the idea of a sound film is this kind of novelty, and there's a separate little column in Variety about sort of the sound films of the year. By 1929, the little column is still there, but now it's for silent films. And by 1930, not a single silent film is being shot by a studio. So the r- rapidity of the, 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 the speed of the change, and then again, sort of what I think all the things that we now take for granted, what it's sort of instituted on people on the ground at the time, you know, it's like sort of actors go from being able to just sort of ad lib and make scenes their own and improv to suddenly they got to memorize dialogue. And we take that for granted now, but that was a new thing, uh, you know, that felt more akin to the theater than to what cinema had felt like. The idea of the camera going from, I mean, I think part of the tragedy of it in some ways, it's comedy and tragedy, which that's where I sort of wanted to capture both in the movie. The, the, the tragedy of it is that silent film at that era, 27, 28, was just reaching such a sort of expressive high, I think. You know, you think of some of the last silent pictures, whether it's, you know, like Sunrise or or, or William Wellman's Wings or, uh, you know, Passion of Joan of Arc or, you know, and they're just so sublime and you get the sense of this art form that's really reaching this idealized state of a universal language and of something where the camera is not tethered by physicality it's floating Murnau is floating his camera he's sort of stitching shots together where you just they feel like dance and painting and it's at that moment it's not that the art form kind of declined and then changed and then sound came in it's it's at the moment of the height when you know you imagine like the height of the renaissance and suddenly someone comes in and goes you can't use oil paint anymore Sorry, you're going to have to just do it all with like uh, crayons now. And you just suddenly like all the great arts at the time going, what the fuck? Okay. Uh, you know, and like that's sort of what happened. And, and, and when you think of it that way, then of course it makes sense that so many of them did not survive ultimately that transition, that it did become this death knell to a whole generation of artists, a whole way of life. And ultimately, I think just kind of irrevocably changed the entire fabric of the industry that we're in. I mean, it, it, it is that in a way, the death of visuals to a degree and, and theater. I mean, you know, theater actors, you know, who were on a stage and were limited by that, but could speak. All of a sudden, there was all, you know, there was this volumes of dialogue because they couldn't go out. They could, they had to be, they were trapped. Uh, and now a lot of your characters are based on real people. I mean, clearly Nellie is Clara Bow, right? Yeah. To large, you know, maybe like, Three quarters, Claire Bow, and then and then sort of you know there's a little bit of young Joan Crawford in there when she first arrived into town, and uh, you know there's a little bit of um, Thelma Todd, sort of a lesser known sort of a comedian of that time, you know, sort of late silent, early sound. Um, yeah, so it's 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 a mix of some of those people, some of whom are very well known today, like Joan Crawford, others really forgotten. But who all I, I of think them had Claire Bow is you know the thing is uh, you know if you don't know anything about her. You know, she was called the it girl and she'd had that kind of freedom and abandon. And she came to town and the important thing is she was for two years the the biggest movie star there was. And the two other years, she was the second biggest. So for four years, she reigned as the biggest, not not female star, Males, females, she was the biggest. And she made Paramount, you know, B.P. Schulberg, you know, who ran Paramount. Now, you know, did you, did you consciously try to make Jeff Carlin look like Harvey Weinstein? (laughs) (laughs) It's funny because, uh, there is a whole like Curb Your Enthusiasm series of episodes where they play on the the Garland Weinstein sort of thing. So in some ways, Larry David had gotten to that joke before I could, uh, alas. But um, you know, I think uh, 
I guess in many ways I had in my head the, you know, I guess you could argue the predecessors to Weinstein, the sort of, you know, Harry Cohn, for instance, was someone who I, I kind of had in mind with Garland's character. All those guys who, shaved. Who, uh, 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 oh, well, yeah, but but the the sort of the, that slightly kind of feral, you know, like, um, I, I guess a little bit the idea also is that Garland's character, that studio where Margot's character is Kinescope, you know, it's a fictional studio, but that, you know, this would be sort of the more, I wouldn't say it was like the Miramax of the time, but kind of the 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 slightly more ragtag, lower budget. You know, so Brad Pitt's character, Jack Conrad, they're out on battlefields shooting thousand extras and you know having their big sort of pomp and circumstance movies. And then meanwhile, on on Nelly's set, um, which was the kind of set that really interested me at that time. Really, you know, you've got the five different movies shooting at once. Those directors are probably shooting a movie a week. You know, it's it's that sort of programmer churning out almost poverty row kind of thing. So everything's a little more feral. Everything's a little less, uh, yeah, less You've got Thalberg in there. Who's, who's the Thalberg's the one, he's like the one down. real guy. Yeah. yeah, he's he's buttoned down and he's MGM. And so that's, this is the Columbia of the... Exactly. I sort of thought of it as like, yeah, it was somewhere, you know, or maybe just below Columbia on the rung, you know, because even Columbia probably had a little more polish than Kinescope. I thought that the actor, what, what was the name of the actor that played the AD? Uh, so you're talking about P.J. Byrne. The AD who loses his mind, yeah. basically. Yeah, P.J. He was Byrne. fabulous. For all you ADs out there, I'm sure that that's familiar, but I thought it was a spectacular sequence of just, you know, you got to get the day. And, of course, it's, you know, we think when we're on a set, it's impossible, but that was impossible. <laughs> and I just thought it was cathartic, brilliant. I think, to, like, channel every worst day on a film set that I or my AD, Bob Wagner on the movie, who had a few pretty trying days on this movie as well, as you can imagine watching it, um, you know, or anyone on the crew, you know, we've all had those days where, where, you know, hopefully it doesn't go quite as badly as that. But I have those stress dream nightmares, you know, where it's just, I think maybe we, we all, all do. do. We yeah. all do. It was just, so it was just way to exercise those demons. Where did you make Bel Air? At the uh, beginning, you so know. That's, that's, so that stretch of road is Piru, um, but it was based on a photograph that I kind of <laughs> had just, uh, was a photograph of, of Bel Air, and it was sort of the, um, it basically looked just like that. It was the sort of thing that was just kind of boggled my mind, where I knew that L.A., pockets of, you know, a lot of L.A. was still very rural in the 20s, but I didn't know to what extent, you know, sort of even stretches of Wilshire Boulevard or stretches that we think of as like, okay, by 1920, they would have been at least a little built up. We're still, you still saw the dirt, you still smelt the sand and the dust. It was still this, um, and that was, but then you'd sort of drive a little bit and around the corner, you'd see this giant monstrosity of a building or a movie set or something. So it was that kind of, that feeling of a city in development where it's half total open wilderness and half like you're in Europe or you're in some fantasy. Well, you did it. You did it with the, you know, he's got to go to Coinga to the camera shop and get it. So he starts in the, you know, it seems like he's in the desert someplace out in Lancaster. But of course, you know, he drives and he goes through and, and ultimately ends up by saying, but you did it all, you know, going through the orange trees. And so it was lovely. So you, you got a sense of that. It's not that far away, even though it seems like it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, I mean, there was a romance to that L.A. I found that doesn't really exist anymore. Or let's say it does exist, but you have to go a little bit further outside to find it. So we wound up shooting a lot of the exteriors of this movie. Most of them, you know, even though they're set in Beverly Hills or Bel Air or, you know, Hollywood Hills, uh, we'd go out to Piru, Lancaster, Palmdale, uh, Santa Clarita, um, Fillmore, you know, uh, Fillmore, exact lot in Fillmore. Um, so it was, uh, 
yeah, it, it, it was, you know, wh- wherever there's dust and snakes still is kind of where we, where we would sort of uh, pitch our tents and shoot. Let's talk about the Brad Pitt character. Is that John Gilbert? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, again, you know, uh, there's a little bit of Fairbanks in there, you know, because he's doing sort of more of these kind of action set pieces and he's kind of wearing the producer hat as well. So that was a little bit of Fairbanks. Fairbanks had this kind of swagger to him of like, what do you mean we can't do that? Well, we're just going to, you know, build the wall there and we'll put 500 people there. And, you know, and, and then the, produ- the you know, studio would go, what's well, it cost so much money? And Fairbanks would, oh, I love this. It's like a director. He would just say, look, you either have to do things right or not at all. And that would just sort of shut them up. And then they would say, okay, here's your check. And, you know, it's, it just somehow seemed to work for him. And he would just make these giant epics. Um, Gilbert, of course, is like the, is the tragic story in a way of someone who, um, well, like Clara Bow, was top of the box office charts for a certain number of years and, um, and really had a, you know, one of the more precipitous falls in, um, yeah, in, in the annals of Hollywood history. I think we have to talk, because I think you do this so brilliantly, um, you know, with your with your first film, now, it wasn't your first film, but the, your drumming movie. You know, uh, Damien was trained. You know, he's, he's schizophrenic, so he trained as a musician, and it was going to go there, and then he went, you know, and fell into the 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 he fell off the wagon and and landed with us. Uh, but you know, your college roommate. Uh, you know, you collaborate with and you have from the very beginning. And this film is an extraordinary mixture of, I mean, you took musical cues. I mean, number one, there's there's the Nelly and Manny cue. You know, there's the Jack cue. You know, you hear these things, but then you play this huge jazz score that goes from the very beginning and that, that party all the way through. And they're set pieces, you know. You you hit a number, you know, I was one in the middle, which is a you know, a Ravel Bolero beat that goes, but then they go and they but they within them you're telling us a little vignette, which I thought was just beautifully done. Talk about that collaboration. Yeah, I mean, uh, thank you. I mean, I really, again, I mean, I have to give a lot of the credit to Justin because he, you know, I, uh, he, uh, you know, we sort of had this shorthand at this point. So I, you know, he's one of the earliest people in the the team, so to speak, that I give the script to, you know, as soon as I sort of feel like it's anywhere close to presentable. Um, and, you know, with this movie, it was, you know, it's not a musical per se, but we sort of approached it as though it were. It's, it's I think what we kept talking about was the idea of, the DNA of a party movie. There's certain sort of movies that are about parties and the life cycles of parties. I think of like Dolce Vita, for instance, being one that we talked a lot about, where in that movie you sort of wind up with this song cycle or or melody cycle where there's a certain number of melodies and they keep getting reprised but in different ways and they become kind of the the soundtrack of the parties that the characters are going to. And each party tells you something a little different about the society. So in here, we'd sort of use the parties as these set pieces. And by party, I guess I also could include a film set because it's sort of in the early silent days, it sometimes could feel like one. But these like wild music set assemblages of people that give you an excuse to get the characters together and, and you structure them like a set piece. And we would also structure them like sort of sustained musical numbers where, this, where score would become diegetic, you know, on-screen music and go back to score. So, you know, in some ways by necessity, but it was also the way I, I like to work, we wound up having a lot of the music done, or at least sort of demoed before shooting. So we could kind of get on set and actually kind of like they would in the silent era, just sort of blast music live on set uh, for a lot of these scenes. Um, again, sometimes it's totally by necessity because you have, you know, 
like Jovan Adepo plays Sydney, having, you know, he has to mimic the trumpet playing. So you got to have that music on set and Margot has to dance. But sometimes it was also just to sort of set the mood, set the tone, you know, so you just kind of had a sense of what, what the thing wanted to feel like. Um, I think another challenge we had was that it's, you know, it's a very long movie. It was a very long script, a frighteningly long script. But the idea was that the music would kind of give it this pulse that I sort of, you know, I think one way I got to sort of get the studio and others to be comfortable with such a sort of long page count was promising them that that it would move at a clip and that it would move faster than it read and that the music would sort of set the tempo. And so that was also kind of helpful for us to just sort of, I storyboarded to music, I shot to music, the editor was cutting to music. It was all sort of mapped out. And the music, as you see, it's mostly pretty fast, up-tempo. Yeah, no, the the scenes, I saw the, I I asked for a site that I could go see the film that I saw tonight. Um, but, you know, uh, you know, you say, oh, it's a three-hour movie. But let me tell you, those scenes move. You know, you're not hanging on things for a long time. So, you know, there's it because, which probably means, what's your schedule on this picture? Uh, it was about 70 days. It, we, it was scheduled as 70, and then we wound up adding like a day. Uh, it was like a still, day and a half. Still, that's a lot of film. Uh, to shoot uh, for that amount of time. Yeah, it was. It felt like, uh, yeah, yeah. We, we could have used more time. I'll, I'll tell you, my, yeah. <laughs> well, we could always use more time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. One always but, uh, can. Th- you know, it's always about you know the quote business and the art and and well, I think uh, one somebody thing- tapping their feet and. There's production managers out here yeah. that, whose job it is to say the budget, the budget, and then there's the ads who are saying, "What do I do to help the director get there?" Um, and I was going to say, when you're when you've got that, I mean, I love the bits where, at, especially at the beginning, what you had. A, a couple of different times. We had an orchestra on the set, a real orchestra, yeah, you yeah. know, creating all this stuff. And, you know, you you felt it. You felt, I mean, I, I would be interested, you know, for those of us that are of a certain generation, we kind of bridged that. But I'd be interested in the young audience seeing this and going, oh, look at that. We had a whole audience out there. This is a, this is a real circus. Yeah. Uh, but um, I, I'd like to know, just in terms of, because I think the performances are just wonderful. Um, you know, she is fantastic. And, um, you know, she went for it. You, you got a commitment from everybody here to, to truly, you know, Margot Robbie, you know, because I don't know what Clara Bow was like, but reading about Clara Bow and her absolute freedom and her refusal to be tamed, you know, except she retired, you know, in 1933, yeah. she didn't, uh, you know, combust, but she did kind of combust because she went out and never came back. Mm-hmm. Um, so talk about your collaboration with the actors. I was, uh, I was a very lucky director on that front, you know, to sort of have this cast. Um, and I think, you know, one thing that even talking about the schedule makes me think of is just that I do believe that sometimes those things that seem like impediments to success can be your best friend. I think the the speed at which we had to sort of shoot these scenes, it sort of imbued everyone with with a certain kind of go for broke energy. We all sort of had to be, no one could walk on this set. Everyone had to be running. Um, so that dictated a certain type of actor. You know, I think there were just certain kinds of actors who just uh, wouldn't have been willing to, to go there in that way. Margot is one of those actors who just... Uh, it's actually hard to imagine her just walking. She is a runner. She's like, I feel like she must have, I know she didn't actually grow up in the outback in Australia, but I sort of, I kind of have her in my mind picturing her as just literally kind of 
riding kangaroos and killing, you know, uh, 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 you know, whatever, uh, uh, <laughs> crocodile dundeeing her way through Australia as a kid. Uh, that's sort of how she approaches, at least approached this role. It was just, it was, it was, uh, energized. It was relentless. It was animalistic. It, you know, no matter how kind of long the days would get or how hot or how sweaty or dirty, she just, she had this energy that just never went away. And it kind of inspired the rest of us, I think. You know, when you have someone like that, like at the, in front of your camera, it, it does become this sort of beam of light that just inspires everyone. And so the crew, the rest of the actors, the extras, everyone, I think we all sort of got the memo from her in many ways to sort of, that we had to up our game. Um, yeah, and, you know, and but but I, I would say that, that that sort of commitment, yeah, it sort of pertains to a lot of the actors. I mean, I think of Diego Calva, the, who plays Manny, who had never... You know, he was sort of like the character he plays. He had never been on a Hollywood film set before. He's just his first time. It was his first time. I remember when I first flew him out to L.A. He'd never been to L.A. He sort of comes, you know, meeting Margot Robbie and Brad Pitt. He's just sort of, you know, wide-eyed. And and then suddenly we have to, like, the first day of his shooting was when he's sort of dealing with the extras and riding on the horse and shooting the gun and stuff. So, again, there was just this sort of meta thing where, like, on the one hand, it seems like a recipe for disaster, you know, that we're really sort of, we're all jumping into the deep end at first. But on the other hand, I think you get something that's more than just acting there. There's something about, you know, the sort of circumstances, the novelty for him, the speed of, the, of shooting that Margot had to deal with, the elements, that, that it helps it become a little bit more real, which is, I guess, you're always sort of searching for a little bit. You're always searching to kind of make people on set forget that they're acting the 20s or that they're acting this character. You want it to just feel ultimately like there's no bridge between life and art. I but I also like. think your third star, you know, Brad Pitt, you know, he really, he, he, he got into that. You, you need somebody who feels like, I've been there, I've done that, I know what being a star is. And he, he just carried it off. You know, from the very beginning when he's, you know, young and crazy and on top of the world, but all the way through, you can yeah. just see it weighing him down. I mean, the thing I love about Brad so much at this sort of stage in his career is that, you know, it's like you sense that, like, he's such a pro that he doesn't need to... He only, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't need to sort of overexert. There's an effortlessness to his acting now. And so that in many ways, I mean, it felt perfect for this role. So you've got like Margo and Diego who by nature of their roles, they had to be sort of ahead of the beat. Brad is always a little behind the beat and there's a beauty to that. He's always a little legato. We talked about his body movement that he would always sort of be floating a little bit, you know, and no matter how much chaos was going around. In fact, the more chaos that goes on around his character, the more serene he is. You think of him on the battlefield where he's just, you know, everyone's losing their minds except for him. He's just, you know, he's having his drink and he's pitching his movie ideas. And even if he gets drunk, it's fine. He still delivers the scene and it's beautiful. In fact, it's when things actually calm down around him. It's once the world really comes to a grinding halt that he discombobulates. That's what he can no longer deal with. Um, so that became sort of the, the, the really interesting thing to play with him. But he's just such, there's sort of no one better than him at playing that kind of, that sort of gracefulness and sort of effortlessness. Of it's a that wonderful sequence with the, with, the, with the rattlesnake where everyone is going crazy and he's the right. person, and he's the he one. stays still and you're seeing it from his point of view. Uh, he, you even brought out some of the music at that point. Yeah. And it's in his head and he's looking at this f farce yeah. of, of life, but somehow he's, he's into it, you know? Yeah, there's, somehow he sees something beautiful in it. And also maybe something, I guess the way I interpret that moment or the way Brad and I talked about it was like 
somehow, he doesn't know this for sure, but there's something in what he's seen, some premonition that he has that that this is all ending. That, yeah. that you know, whatever little beauty might be in the farce of this circus, that the party's over, the circus is ending, everyone's packing up and going home, and it's never never going to be the same. I mean, this town has always had, uh, you know, the, the wild and crazy. Every generation feels that, oh, Hollywood is really... But, you know, when you read about the beginning, I don't know if anybody's read the, you know, uh, Charlie Chaplin's biography. It's in two volumes. And the first one, when he first comes here, I mean... The thing is, these people are out there making movies. They're making two, three a week. They had no idea, no idea that they, this medium, that the movies, was happening in the East because they were so busy, they're working. And then all of a sudden, it comes home, bang. At the end of his book, there's the most amazing thing. I'm sorry for digression, but I think it relates to this. Um, he's, he's working, he's working, and he keeps asking for raises, and they say, okay. You know, I was making a hundred a week. I want, I'm working too hard. I want two. Okay. I want five. Okay. He's like going, I don't get it. I want a thousand. Okay. And what he doesn't understand is that there's millions of people that are seeing movies, but they're not understanding it here. And at the very end, his brother calls him to New York. He goes to New York. They're going to sign a deal. And as he's traveling across the country on a train, he gets into uh, St. Louis and he's shaving. He's got this shirt off and he's shaving. He thinks, maybe I'll go out and walk. And as he's going by, he sees there's a huge crowd. And that this huge crowd has pictures of him. He goes, Sh-. and the train stops and they all run on. And he goes crazy because he thinks they're going to kill him. He has no idea. When he gets to New York, he walks in, he signs a deal for $350,000 and his own company. And he's 21. So that's what you're talking about. Well, that kind of new influx. I mean, the, the, the thing also that that story, I think, captures so well is the, just how new all of this was. The stuff we take for granted today, like the, the idea of a movie star, even the idea of a close-up. I always think of how, you know, uh, we're used to living in a language of close-ups. But the idea of seeing a movie star in close-up, you know, it used to be that celebrities would be opera stars or theater stars or royalty, and you'd see them from afar. You'd be up in the rafters or they'd be, you know, in a parade. You'd see them, you know, you'd, you'd be lucky if you kind of glimpsed them as a silhouette. And suddenly anyone can sort of go and sit in a movie theater and see a giant close-up of Greta Garbo or Louise Brooks or Valentino and feel like they know them. There's suddenly this intimacy that's created. And I think that's the root of sort of the hysteria that sort of early movie fandom generated. There's a, just a hysterical, I mean, we try to get at that a little bit with sort of you know, like Nellie being mobbed, Margot getting being mobbed as she gets into the car. But, you know, there are real stories of people across the country, young girls killing themselves when Valentino died. I mean, imagine that, you know, uh, who had never met him. Not people who knew him, just people who were fans. There's, there's this sort of, uh, again, hysteria, almost religious rapture associated with, with movie stardom and the power of the celluloid image on the big screen in those days because it was new, because it was unprecedented. It sort of defied any of the sort of previous ideas of, 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 of what art could do, I guess, you know? Um, and so I think, yeah, it was important for me with this movie, if nothing else, to try to capture some aspect of that insanity, that this was, there was an insanity unique to this time and place that, um, you know, in some ways it, it had to go away. Maybe it's good that it went away in some ways, you know, but, but it's, it's a type of fervor that I think is never, you know, is unique to the beginnings of something. Well, I think, you know, and, and you start with that party orgy and, you know, you think, oh, gee, what a lot of excess, you know. 
that, you know, back then is when they did it. <laughs> they, nobody, nobody knew what they were doing. Los Angeles was this out-of-the-way place, and they could let her all hang out. Do whatever they wanted. They yeah. could do whatever they want. And, of course, this is a very Puritan moral country. And the morals you see in this film catch up, yep. and those people, they had to go. Yep. And, uh, well, uh, you know, we've got a professional audience here. I think that uh, the relationship of a director and an AD is a crucial crucial you all know relationship most people don't and you see a film like this and you realize what the ad was facing and had to do you want to talk about that collaboration it's so funny i so bob wagner was the ad on this movie i remember i first i had my own sort of starstruck moment working with him because when i was just breaking into the industry uh, David Fincher's movie, The Social Network, came out. And I remember I was so obsessed with that movie. I watched every behind the scenes I could of it. And I remember being particularly obsessed with the use of extras in that movie. It's just normally you just, you can tell bad directing from bad extras, I, f I feel like, you know. Um, cause anyone can have, I know Daniel D. Lewis will be good in any movie with any director. But if you look at the extras and they're bad, that's kind of how you can sort of tell the, the, the wheat from the chaff. But, but extras, of course, as many of you here know, is also really ultimately the domain of the AD. I mean, that's the, that's, that's the person who's really sort of directly um, choreographing all that. And I would look at the behind the scenes and I'd see this AD walking around and sort of helping, you know, kind of orient and position these extras and these Harvard bars and stuff. And it was Bob Wagner. I just went, okay, I've got to work with that guy. And that was, you know, back in 2011 or something. But he was always only doing Fincher's movies. He was always a no, I can never get in touch with him or whatever. Anyway, so eventually, many years later, I finally get him this script and, uh, and sort of met with him, asked him about the social network, asked him about every other movie he'd done with, uh, you know, Fincher and Michael Mann and et cetera. Um, a lot of great directors. Um, but I also sort of, you know, I, I kind of wanted to make sure he knew that this was going to be uh, this was going to be a challenge of a movie, you know, and and uh, uh, and he totally, he not only knew it, he embraced it, and I think what what we really sort of, I, th I think one of the reasons I really wanted to kind of, I wanted his touch was, again, not just the the, the logistical challenges of a movie like this, but the fact that this was going to be a movie that in many ways the story was going to be told through the crowds, through the extras. This was something where, Yes, it was going to be about our actors and our movie stars, but always in the back. I wanted every background to be deep and stacked with activity and action, whether it's a party or not. Just that that this always, you know, I, I love how, you know, it's it's like something, I, this, I digress, but like in a movie like Raging Bull, it's a fighting movie, it's a boxing movie. Okay, so you're there to see the boxing matches, you see that. But what's really great, I think one of the genius things about that movie is that you always sense a fight just about to happen or happening off in the corner of the frame outside the ring the audience is always about to fight or like there's a club you know they're in the Copacabana or whatever and there's a fight breaking out and it's always in for in back deep background or something so you just what I think what you get from that is this feeling that the movie the crowds everyone in it is always alive there's this life outside the frame and that's the type of orchestration of crowds and things that just again it, you need a great AD to do that and he in turn needs a great team under him to do that and so I was just so lucky to have Bob to have, you know, he brought in some of the best, you know, the best second AD I'd ever worked with and second, second, and just, it sort of helped actually, I mean, the PAs we had were amazing. Just everyone was just sort of operating under Bob who just kind of set the tone and just enabled me to do this sort of, that, that kind of broad stroke painting that I'd never gotten to do before. Painting with crowds, painting with, you know, the, the sort of edges of the frame and allowing the feeling of life just sort of always some craziness going 
out just beyond the camera, but that you get a sense of. So you feel that everything's always alive. Oh, it's there. Really great. And I also want to uh, have you talk about Michael Bug, who is, you know, you, you work with on La La yeah. Land yeah. and is your line producer, production manager, and is extraordinary. How about that relationship? I mean, at least with him, I sort of knew already that he had the, like, I'd already put him through the ringer on trying to, you know, it's like, do a dance number on a freeway, you know, he sort of, he kind of, uh, uh, he'd had his own set of challenges, but I still think this one was, uh, you know, I think he had his days of really hating me on this movie. Um, but that makes for a healthy, you know, healthy line producer director relationship. Uh, you know, he, he, uh, the great thing about Michael also is that, um, which, which was really helpful in this movie is that it's like the rare type of personality who somehow never seems to get ruffled. It's like, it's like he has this kind of serene thing. Maybe inside he's getting very ruffled. In fact, I think he probably is, but he manages to, to hide it very well. And so, you know, it'd always be like, okay, we're X number of, you know, millions over and we got to like figure out how to cut 50% of the budget and we're one week from shooting and we have to, you know, do, and he just sort of, mm-hmm, okay, mm-hmm, oh, yep, okay, yep, yep, well, well, we'll look into that. Mm-hmm. It, just, it just has this like Midwestern kind of like thing that's just unflappable, that's amazing when I think of what he was sort of had to deal with in this picture. So, yeah, he's another hero, I think. Unsung hero of the movie. He is, he's wonderful. Um, uh, I've, I've gotten the, um, the, the hook uh, I, I'm sorry that I, I usually open it up for questions and I have so many, uh, things to talk to Damien about. And remember, it was a three hour movie. We usually have a half hour for a two hour movie. So I am going to open it up right now for five questions. Quick. Yes. That's a good question. The, 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 you know, I, I don't know about the third, uh, counterpart movie. I mean, um, I would say definitely, uh, I think sometimes we would think of this movie when we were making it as sort of, I'd say kind of the, the poison pen letter to La La Land's love letter, you know, that it was a little bit the, uh, or if La La Land is the dream, this is the nightmare, you know, it's, it's just the La La Land is the one you bring the kids to. This is maybe not, uh, you know, so, uh, I, I think, um, uh, we, d- you know, this, that sort of dialogue, you know, was definitely, um, was definitely sort of in our mind. Yeah. All right. Hands. Yes. I actually found, I'm trying to like reduce it into lightly to one thing, but I found actually very often that that sort of thing where you, um, the scenes that you stress about the most, you know, actually wind up, I wouldn't say they were ever easy, but you wind up kind of, you've prepped them so much that you wind up sort of getting through them with a certain velocity, like sort of, I think of like the battlefield scenes or, or things like that, that really sort of uh, concerned me. Um, the scenes where, you know, we'd be on set and where I'd feel the most pressure of like we're running over or close to running over or we have to, you know, sort of make up time would be uh, often, very often, much simpler, quieter, you know, dialogue setups. You know, it'd be something like, um, you know, like a scene between, uh, for instance, uh, uh, Brad and, and, and Catherine Waterston, where we sort of, uh, who plays one of his wives that we really wanted to get right, or it'd be like a scene with, uh, with uh, D- just a, you know, a solo, like a, just a two-first scene with Diego and Margot, just these scenes that logistically didn't feel like challenges at all, but where it just, you know, you'd kind of do a few takes and then feel like, ah, there's still meat there. We haven't, we haven't quite gotten it. And so when that happens, I like to try to often just have the actors improvise or have them, or just sort of pull the rug out a little bit, you know, just sort of, okay, do the scene, but now X has changed, or now, you know, something's going to intervene in the middle, and you see what happens, and then we improvise some more, and then we go back to after you improvise for a bit, you go back to the script. And 
I, so eventually you, you find something where you feel by the end of the day, hopefully like you've gotten every sort of nook and cranny out of the scene, but it takes time. And I think sometimes, you know, it, it would sort of take time in a way that surprised people, even myself sometimes, but you sort of feel like the need to do it. Any others? Um, yes, you're going to be the last. The, the, that final scene was sort of, in many ways, made in the edit room. Um, what we shot was relatively simpler. It was really just sort of Manny in the theater and sing, and watching Sing in the Rain. And But the script kind of uh, sort of had these sort of paragraphs of very purple prose about sort of like, you know, sort of you know, what he's going through in his mind and all that. And so once we were sort of in the edit, we kind of realized sort of the whole movie is sort of maximalist, sort of sensory overload. Um, and then it sort of gets quieter towards the end. And we sort of realized that just structurally it needed one final set piece. It was missing one final set piece. And so um, the idea, you know, so that's kind of where the, the origin of the idea for the sort of last sequence was let's find some way to convey some semblance of what might be going on in Manny's head, but let's make it feel like we're returning to the energy of the beginning of the film. So it's, you know, not so much just a literal flashback or something. It's more about let's try to recapture the kind of thudding, you know, th- like stomping party kind of energy, almost drug fueled energy, even though we're years away from that and he's an older man and he's presumably not on drugs. And, you know, he's, uh, but let's find a way to sort of have the movie get high on just the fumes of those memories and of what cinema can mean and what maybe, you know, uh, cinema can mean both in terms of past, present, and future and also in terms of today, you know, and so. Um, it, it sort of began just like that, just sort of on that sort of gut level. And then we just experimented a lot in the editing room and sort of finally sort of landed where we did. Finally, it's, you know, going back to the beginning of the movie, there's that wonderful homage to all of our uh, anxiety when the sun goes down. And, uh, and here it's gone. And, you, you know, you hung on the mountains and the sun for a long time. And then finally, you know, just as it happens, they get the shot. And, uh, and of course, I think all of us, if we haven't done, been there, we certainly have dreamed of that uh, because it's, it's definitely part of the filmmaking process. Damien, congratulations. It's a prodigious, prodigious film. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you guys so much. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America 